0: Okay, so we we have a question and answer session now. Um, You have two or three questions, so um, if anybody still wants to write a question down and send it to the front, they may, or if they'd like just to ask, um verbally. You can do that also. So the question, first question is, um, yesterday, Prajan told us that 30 minutes worth meditation could easily be destroyed by idle chatter with friends. Doesn't that mean that talking about Dhamma with Prajan also destroys Samadhi from meditation? Um... <clears throat> Uh, there, are, there are two or three points here. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with each point. Um, th- this is something for you to observe, um, what does and does not, um, have a negative effect on the clarity of mind or the, the brightness or the, the, the peace of mind. And indeed, this is a way which, in which can see, um, how uh, teachings of morality in Buddhism um, differ from other teachings, religions, traditions. Um, so our our criteria here is the um, <clears throat> the effect that actions and speech have upon our mind. So without going to um, a book or a list of Right kinds of speech and wrong kinds of speech. We, we build up a, a kind of a database. You know, we know for ourselves what kind of speech, um, clouds the mind or makes the mind feel kind of dirty and irritable afterwards. Um, <clears throat> when, when I teach, um, the monks about this in, um, in a monastery, I would say, uh, after a conversation, uh, do you feel like going to meditate? Do you feel like going straight from that conversation onto your walking meditation path or your uh, or to go and sit on your cushion? If you feel kind of kind of restless and irritable and and um, agitated in your mind and that's that 's like the last thing you want to do right now, then that 's a good indication that that was wrong speech. Um, so, um, developing right speech, um, is a very important practice and skills in communication. Um, I could say that's one of the weak points. So we can see, um, certainly in Thai, I don't know about overseas these days because I never lived there, but, but in terms of communications in, Institutions, in schools, in universities, in, in government departments, and the, um, faulty, weak communication skills, um, like a major issue, I think. And, um, in Buddhism, you know, this, uh, effort to develop more awareness and skill in how we communicate with one another is one um, area which is inbo- included in sila or sintam. So, um, I think most people will, will find if there's a certain amount of spe- right speech, let's say, um, talking about meditation, talking about, um, Issues like suffering and dealing with suffering, talking about real, real things, um, with care and kindness. Um, then after you finish speaking, your mind doesn't feel kind of weary and, and irritable and agitated. Quite on the contrary, it can further strengthen the mind. So last night, if you remember, we, we chanted the Mangala Sutta or about the different kinds of blessing in a human life. And so one was listening to the Dhamma, listening to teachings of the Buddha at um, opportune times. And the other one was Dhamma conversation um, at the uh, appropriate times. So, you know, we spend a lot of time, most people spend a lot of time chatting and talking, but, you know, how much of that talk, Is gossip and how much actually is, um, uplifting to ourselves and to others. Um, that's a very good question to ask ourselves, I think. And also, you know, how it can increase the amount of, of nourishing kind of conversation without seeming like, you know, like a a Buddhist missionary or something or trying to, you know, like say, tamma, tammo, as we say in Thailand, but, but uh being able to, to to deal with more um real issues in our life um in, in a constructive way, learning how to deal with the kinds of um insecurity and um discomfort that arise when we have to start talking about feelings. I'm particularly uh men more than women. It's a real difficult thing for most men to do to talk about their feelings. Um, but it's, <clears throat> uh, but it's a skill. It's a life skill to develop. Um, the next question is, um, from the same uh, person is, how do we know we are progressing when meditating? Um, and in, in the brackets here is progressing through the 16 different yarns or beyond. Um, so for those of you who don't know, yarn is a Thai um <clears throat> pronunciation of a word called jnana in Pali and in the commentarial tradition. I'm going to tell you what the commentarial tradition is. The <clears throat> right from the time when the, the Buddha was teaching, there were monks commenting on it, or well, maybe even the Buddha gave a talk and uh, afterwards, somebody might come up to him and say, I didn't quite understand that that part. Could you explain it a little bit more? So these explanations, which are not like formal talks, which were included in what we call the sutta, um, they formed like a body of commentary. So these are commentaries, explanations, um interpretations from beginning from the Buddha himself and the great disciples and then carried on um, for the next hundreds of years um, until a thousand years after the Buddha passed away, a great monk in Sri Lanka called Buddhagosa collected and edited all of the commentaries that had been passed down over the centuries. Um, and wrote this sort of the great book of uh, commentary in this Buddhist tradition called the Visuddhimagga, or the Path to Purity. And he also wrote comment commentaries and word-by-word um, explanations for all of the suttas and all of the Vinaya texts, as to say, the texts concerning the Buddha's discipline, and also the Abhidhamma, which is the kind of the psychology and, and, um, systematization of the Buddha's teachings, which took place, um, mostly after he died. So, uh, we have the, the great commentaries, um, written by Buddhaghosa, great monk or Buddhaghosa in Sri Lanka, a half, a thousand years after the Buddha passed away. He didn't write them himself. He collected and edited them. Um, And so um, this is a word you'll hear a lot about, the the commentaries. So this is what we mean in the commentarial tradition. So if we start to study the Buddha's teaching, um, we can distinguish between what we call primary sources and secondary sources. So the primary source are the words of the Buddha himself. Um, which we find in the suttas, in the discourses, in the collected talks that the Buddha gave, and in the Vinaya, all of the instructions concerning the monks' discipline and the um, and the monastic order. Then um, following that we have the secondary sources which are the commentaries. Now even the commentaries which were uh, were edited, collected by Buddhaghosa, are not always so clear. And so then you have like a third layer and a fourth layer. So you have a, um, particularly, um, that's created, uh, written in, in Burma. Um, so you have a, a third level, which is called the tika, which is, uh, the commentary on the commentary. And then you have a sub tika, which is the commentary on the commentary on the commentary. So it gets very complex. Uh, Why well, I'm telling you all this, one, one for general knowledge, but also um, there tends to be a lot of confusion. And um, many of the things that you that you might find a little bit uh, confusing or difficult or um, even uninspiring, often they're not from the primary source, the words of the Buddha themselves, um, but they've appeared in the commentarial tradition. Now, when we come across things in the commentaries which are not in the sutta, what's our attitude? Well, the correct attitude is is to see to what extent they are in harmony with the original teachings. If they're in harmony, then they're a tool that we can use. But there may be occasions when they conflict with the original teachings for one reason or another. In that case, we give precedence. To the primary source or the Buddha's words themselves, we call Buddha Vajjana. So that's a long, um, introduction to this phrase here that 16 jnanas. So the 16 jnanas are, uh, are from a commentarial tradition. They are not words of the Buddha himself. And they are, um, a convention or a teaching in the Burmese vipassana traditions um in which they um lay out um levels of wisdom you know if you go stage 1 stage 2 stage 3 all the way up to 16 stages and if you go to on a retreat um in one of these monasteries or uh, meditation uh centers they use these 16 levels. And they'll be asking you questions. Have you had this experience or that experience? And i say, oh, you're on this level or that level. So though that whole system of evaluating experience in meditation is not one used in Thai forest tradition at all. Um, and although we can see um, certain experiences and and call knowledges or insights in those sixteen insights which seem familiar or might be spoken about um point by point, um, then um the idea that everyone has to go through these stages or it's very it's that systematic um is not one that I I personally would share. Um I think that people's minds are, are are quite different. And people, progress in meditation takes many different forms. Anyway, the, the question is really is how do you know when you're really making progress in meditation? And it's a crucial question because the reason why many people start off in meditation with a lot of enthusiasm, um, and then they get bogged down and they give up, um, is usually because they don't think that they're making any progress. And it's like a lot of, um, investment of time and energy for not very much result. Um, I, I would, um, I would argue that that, that kind of, um, attitude is based upon a lack of understanding about the, Meditative process and what it is exactly we're, we're doing when we're meditating. Like, um, I think we have to get away from this kind of goal-oriented thinking. Um, and this is precisely why meditation is, is such a, um, powerful, um, feature of our life is, is that, um, we're no longer doing this in order to get that. You know, so in, in the world, we might sort of get, do this degree in order to get this job or do this in order to get that reward. And our minds are very conditioned to think like that. But in meditation, it's, it's putting the effort on the quality of the effort itself. Um, and learning how to deal with what comes up in meditation. It's a very, um, Uh, profound kind of problem solving, uh, we can say. Uh, So, um, if, if one, this is not the only way to look at meditation, but if it's one way of looking at meditation is as, um, problem solving, um, then it's not that, um, we want to, um, get to a point where we don't have to solve any problems anymore. Um, but what we're, we're seeing is yet, our problem-solving skills are developing every time we practice. So we're not taking progress to mean no more problems, but we mean increasing skill in dealing with problems. Um, and I, I, that's applicable to, uh, to, to meditation practice. We're learning about positive-negative menti- mental states how to deal effectively with negative mental states? How to create, sustain positive mental states? Um, how to understand the nature of the mind and body more clearly? So, um, if we if we set up some kind of goal of peace and yanas and 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 all these things, then it can make it very stressful um, and a lot of worldly cravings come into the mind so um, what I would say about progress in meditation is you you don't look at it at a you know a, a, um, a session by session a kind of assessment um, you have to look at it over a long period of time six months or a year um, but also what you can notice is that if you are meditating well if you like to use that term it should be uh having um, an effect on your conduct and your behavior because the thing that will uh the kinds of things that come up as you start to meditate more often um are, you know more mindfulness more calm more patience more tolerance um but Um, In particular, this um, appreciation of law of kamma, and that manifests as um, what we call hiri o It's like an intelligent or wise fear of um, uh, bad actions and uh, a, a, a wise, informed shame of... Um, behaving and speaking badly. So you become a lot more careful about your actions and speech. That's a very good sign that your, that your meditation is going well. Um, the other is, um, as you look at your mind more clearly and you see its strong points and its weak points and you start to be, develop more of an awareness of a big picture of your life than you would normally, um, then a lot of gratitude arises. Gratitude for your parents, gratitude for your teachers. Um, and just seeing the whole web of um, causes and conditions that have led you to where you are today. And and uh, when you see good qualities within you, then so often you can see, oh yes, I got that from my mum, or I got that from my dad, or I got that... You know, I really developed this because of this teacher or that teacher. So if you're looking for progress in meditation, not just looking in terms of some special experiences, um, but your whole quality of life and your relations to other people, there's a, a much more um, solid and dependable kind of gauge of progress. Uh, when I meditate, I used to see lights of various colors and other mind-something things, but now I only sense the things happening externally and internally, breathing, pain, itching and thoughts, and feel like I'm not making progress at all, or that my jit is not being refined of gilet or gilesa at all. No, this is um, quite... Seeing lights um, is not an indication that you're making progress. Um, the, 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 it's not the content of what you're experiencing um, as much as your relationship to it. Um, if you get caught up and delighted by um, beautiful lights in your mind... It's not really, at the end of the day, anything different than becoming delighted by a uh, memory of some uh, piece of music that you like or, or some wonderful food that you like to eat. It's the, the psychologically the process is the same. Something arises in your mind and you just delight in it. And it is that delight in experience uh, which is the obstacle to meditation. Not the experience itself. So, um, lights and things are kind of exciting, aren't they? People like to think, Oh, yeah, lights. I must, that must mean I'm doing something right. Um, but it's just, it's nothing, nothing very special. Uh, my teacher was asked about this, you know, say, Oh, um, or oh, see all these lights, I oh, want to see all these lights. He said, well, you, you want to see a lot of light, close your eyes and see a lot of lights and just go to Bangkok, there's far more to see. So it's not the point, that's not, um, it's, I say, it's like problem solving. How, how do you deal with pain? How do you deal with itching? How do you deal with thoughts? How do you deal with all these things that arise? This is the work of, of meditation being able to free ourselves from grasping onto those things and being uh, affected by them or suffering because of them. This question is in Thai, so I'm going to leave this one. uh, It can be for the Thai session. Um, My friend who does not have much background knowledge about Buddhism asked me the purpose of Gantus in Bad, or keeping eight precepts, what answer would I give him? Well, um I did um, make a few remarks about Sila last night, but I'll, I'll repeat them, expand upon them now. Um, in, in most um, philosophies and religions, particularly those um, that believe in a god or gods, then um, morality or the, the moral code um, is believed uh, to have been established by that ultimate supreme authority. And it's enforced by a system of reward, and punishment. So if you you do what um, God or the supreme being wants you to do, you're obedient um, to his wishes, then you get a reward. If you don't, you get punished. So when you have that idea of a, a single supreme being laying down a moral code to which human beings have to be obedient... Then there, there's the possibility of, um, well, maybe you could change his mind. You know, it's, it's like, uh, in a dictatorship. If all the power is with one figure and you, maybe you have some connection, then maybe you can persuade the all-powerful figure not to punish you when you do something wrong. Um, so, uh, then you have this whole system of petitionary prayer, asking, uh, for, uh, to be let off something and you won't be, do it again for instance um but in 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 buddhism uh, the the basis of the moral code is the law of kamma, law of cause and effect that actions of body speech and mind accompanied by volition or intention um have results which um, are uh, related to or which harmonize with the intention. So the the most basic expression of this idea is tamdi-dai-di, tamchua-dai-chua. So the (coughs) um, the practice of sila, and, uh, in, uh, in Buddhism, um, is a training or an education of our conduct. So we don't have to refer to a higher being at all. We start off very simply saying, what are the elements? What are the characteristics of a healthy family or a healthy community? You know, what are the kinds of what's the bottom line you know for uh, a family or a community to live together and happily so one of the uh the main points that i i made um, last night was that um safety we have to feel safe if you feel that you're in danger that somebody around you might uh physically or verbally abuse you at any time. Yeah, you, know, you can't feel really happy there. It's impossible. Um, you need to be able to trust each other. You need a sense of mutual respect. Um, so if that, if that is the case, then, um, how com- practically speaking, what can we do to create this kind of healthy community in every, which everyone feels safe, they feel warm and, and appreciated, um, they feel a sense of mutual respect and kindness. What, what can we do to be able to create that kind of community? So the Buddha said the first step is that um, if all the people in the community, the family... Um, make a commitment uh, to uh, refrain from or to not do certain things, not speak in certain ways, um, and take that as the standard, then um, that feeling of um, safety and um, mutual respect and appreciation will arise. So we can see that this is not, um, overly idealistic. We're not saying we should all love each other and forgive each other and be kind to each other and then everything will be fine. Because we can't make that kind of promise. You know, you can't promise, um, that you won't ever get irritated or lose your temper with someone you love. Um, there's always going to be Um, things going on, some misunderstandings, some, uh, hurt feelings, some anger, some jealousy, all these kinds of things. And we can't just decide not to feel all those emotions because we want to live together happily. But what we can say is that even though, um, every now and again I might lose my temper with you, I might get angry, um I will never abuse you. I will never abuse you physically. I will never abuse you verbally. This is my promise to you. You see? So, uh, when you do that, then that's a good basis for a healthy community, isn't it? Because it's practical. Um, and it's, it's something that we can do. You cannot, unless you're... Uh, you've developed your mind to a very high degree, you uh reached one stage of enlightenment, you can't promise that you won't get angry with somebody. You can't promise that you won't ever want to or think about hitting somebody. Uh, but you're saying, even if I really f- feel really violent and angry, I won't. That's my decision. That's my promise. That's my commitment. So the... Um, these first five precepts, um, are the basis for healthy, happy, um, communities, families, communities, societies. Um, so instead of looking at the five precepts in the negative, or you don't do this, you don't do that, you know, you feel like you're just missing out on so much. These are actually the building blocks. These are the foundation for the kind of families and community, that life that we all want. Now, the question was about the eight precepts. Now, the eight precepts um, are um, taken on by practicing Buddhists on special occasions. Um, traditionally, um, Buddhists would take the eight precepts on the one Prat day, so every um eighth day of the moon cycle and every 15th day so in in one month one lunar month of 4 days or some people might just make the um the uh, aditan or, or make a resolution to take eight precepts on the two um uh, the uh, the dark moon and the full moon days the one yai. So once a month uh sorry, twice a month or four times a month, um then lay Buddhists would take the eight precepts. Uh, but the rest of the time the five precepts are considered to be sufficient for lay Buddhist uh, living in the world. Now if you look at the extra precepts in the eight precepts um form you'll see that they don't relate to good and bad you know it's not like really bad karma you know you're not going to go to hell if you eat in the evening obviously or if you watch a movie or you or you put some makeup on or listen to a uh, listen to uh, music um it's nothing to do with um basic morality and basic quality of life in communities but these are um, renunciation precepts that means that we just um, every now and again by taking a precept we have a form in which we just take ourselves out of our usual way of life and way of living um, first advantage is it frees up some time you know we're all these days um may have more money more wealthy but we're time poor so you may most of most people most of you make a choice um and uh be willing to be time poor um in order to be um money or possession um, rich or wealthy to one extent or another but given that um, people are very poor, they don't have um, much time, then the eight precepts is a way of freeing up some time. So you're not cooking food, eating food, digesting food in the evening. Um, when you're not watching TV or you're on your uh, computer or um, receiving, sending messages... Just coming out of that whole world of social media for one evening, um, or one, one day, one night. Um, it gives you time to, um, meditate, to read some Dhamma book and to do those, um, to, uh, fulfill the kind of spiritual practices which you find, uh, you rarely have time for in your daily schedule. So it's a break from that kind of daily Madness. Um, it's also a good check to see how healthy your relationship to those things are. Because it's so easy for there to be a, like a drip, 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 um, increase in all these things until they become way out of balance. And so to, as a check to where, how, how balanced your life is, um, these, eight precepts um, just help you to stand back and by going without those things for just one day and one night then you see what happens do you feel really lost and um, irritated and lonely and uh, upset and depressed um, if those kind of things happen then then that's a good signal um, that you, you, you lost some balance in your relationship with those things and need to, um, establish some, some new standards for yourself, some new boundaries. So the eight, the eight precepts, the, the, um, addition of this, the sixth, seventh, eighth, and the change of the third precept, uh, to a brahmacharya, to celibacy, standing back from all the usual worldly activities a little bit and being able to assess, um, to uh, check the balance um, and also to free up time for um, some specific spiritual practices. Okay. <clears throat> One or two more. What is the purpose to wear amulets as well as the reason why people buy these amulets for high prices? (laughs) Good question. Um, Well, originally, um, I think the, you know, the original purpose is that these things are reminders, you know, like just as Christians might wear a cross and Buddhists will wear an amulet or a, a Buddha medallion just to remind you of your values and your commitment to Buddhist path. Um, unfortunately, um these uh, amulets and Buddha medallions and all these things have just been absorbed into the um capitalist uh, mercantile commercial um <laughs> uh jungle and now, so now they are, um, traded, really. So although you still use this kind of polite language, we say we chow, you don't buy them, you rent them, and whatever, but, but, uh, really, um, looking at the intentions of the people involved, you know, all, oh, Oh, you've got one of those. Oh, wow. You can get like a hundred thousand baht for one of those. Have you got one of these? These are even. So it becomes very kind of worldly. And the fact that the object itself is a, um, is a, uh, representation of the Buddha or of a great monk is really incidental, um, to what's really going on, which is just buying and selling. So it's, um, um for most in most cases not in every case uh, you know it's become a very corrupted um uh hobby practice uh, and interest and um and it's not just in thailand these days um uh been in, <laughs> go to china more regularly now and and um thai Amulets, a huge big business in China, in Shanghai, and also in Singapore, and so it's everywhere. So we're almost there. This will be. So uh, this is uh, actually a big. Uh, big question, but I'm going to give a um, reasonably short answer. What are the main differences between Theravada Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism? So, I, I mean, there are whole books written about this, so it's not something that can be explained so easily. But um, after the the Buddha passed away, there were Buddhist communities um, in different parts of India, and with communications um so poor in those days uh, inevitably um the um the personalities and the personal practices of the leaders of different communities um started to influence their interpretations of the teachings or their what they emphasized um and then there's the role of scholarship and so on and so forth. So you had this gradual diversification. Um, and although it wouldn't be right to call these sects because they didn't sort of feel that they were competing or that they were in conflict, they were like different schools, if you like. Um, and then they could be grouped into um, two main groups. One main group we could call the conservative group, um, and then the other group will be called the liberal group. So of the conservative group, um, some 20 different schools um, dwindled down eventually till all that's left today um, is the Theravada school, which survived because it moved down to the south of Thailand, excuse me, India, and then over into Sri Lanka. And um, the Isle of Sri Lanka became a refuge and protected it. And then from Sri Lanka, Theravada Buddhism spread into Thailand and um, Burma and, and um, uh, into Southeast Asia. So, uh, and Thailand today is what we call predominantly a Theravada Buddhist country. Now, Mahayana... Um, Buddhism is not a single school. Um, it's uh, the name for the group of schools. And so uh, we can... Uh, the term we would use is... It's an umbrella term. So there isn't just a, a thing called Mahayana Buddhism which you can compare with Theravada Buddhism. Um, there are many different schools of Mahayana Buddhism. Um, some of them... Um, more similar to Theravada Buddhism than others. Now, Mahayana Buddhism, what I call the liberal um, uh, group, and that is to say they were a lot more willing to adapt to uh, different cultures as they spread out throughout the world. And so the, the Mahayana schools... Um, were uh, absorbed a lot more influence from the religions and cultures to which they spread than the conservative group, particularly Theravada, which um, his whole uh, ideal is to care for the original teachings and not allow them to be distorted or corrupted. So the Mahayana, because they were that more flexible, then they spread a lot further than Theravada and spread up into, um, northwestern Asia. So a lot of those, um, Stan countries, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, all those were, were Mahayana Buddhists and indeed Afghanistan, Afghanistan it actually was more of a, one of the Theravada um, schools or um, in the same group as Theravada. But the Iran, present-day Iran, uh, was um, Mahayana for quite some time. There are still remnants of, of um, Mahayana temples in, to be found in the desert in Iran. Um, and, it, of course, it spread to Tibet and to China and to Korea and to Japan. And so a China is a good example where it, it um, in China, it met uh, uh, Confucianism and Taoism and so was very much influenced by them. And then there were changes to be made because of climate, changes to be made because of um, surrounding conditions and so buddhism evolved and changed and um each school developed its own set of scriptures and when they did this the, the mahayana were at a disadvantage in that they um their teachings didn't have the same weight as the the um pali teachings which were the original buddha Vajjana, Buddha word, and so it became um, a custom. It became believed that the Mahayana suttas, which were written much later, hundred years, two hundred years or more later, even more, um, were in fact um, did in fact come from the Buddha, but the Buddha gave them to the to the devas to, to the Tevada or to the Payanak um, to look after until people were born who could understand them. So this was how they got round this um, uh, criticism that you just made this up and you say it's the Buddha. They say, I it was the Buddha, but he gave it to the devas and and uh, then we got it from the devas. You see, so... Um, so there are many... Um, Many similarities, and it's worth noting there's never been kind of religious war in Buddhism between this, this group and that group. Everybody gets on fine, and if I go to China or I go to Tibet or uh, meet monks of other traditions, they're just like, um, brothers and, and, you know, all, all feel we're the same, same group. Um, so the, the differences, um, of, Philosophy and of, of, particularly of meditation practices, um, at least for monks don't feel so significant. But in the, I think in the Mahayana groups, you can see a lot more, um, influence of, um, like a lot more praying and, uh, devotional practices than in the Theravada, um, yeah, it's a really big topic, so I think we're a bit short of time. If anybody wants to ask something specifically about those uh, differences, then uh, we can go into it in a bit more detail. But I, I feel very happy that this kind of big diversity of teachings and practice, but it's all feels like it's all one big, big family really, and there's never been bad feeling between the different Buddhist groups, as there is, tends to be between uh, different sects in most religions. Okay, so um, we're going to have a short meditation session now um, before we end at midday. So we've got 20 minutes, so if you'd like to...